these messages from Edward. And tonight is the 13th and final, or 12th and final one. That's right. I preached one through this week. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to see if he makes a book if mine would get slid in there somehow. I doubt it that, uh, as I wrote it. But I have enjoyed them immensely. I'm going to be back for three weeks to close out the Understanding Godliness. And then Edward will take us from the middle of November to the end of the year on Advent. Come on. I thoroughly enjoyed the series. Uh, it may well become a book. Um, with like, 13 chapters? With, well, you can negotiate <laughs> with me and uh, if there's something in it for me, absolutely, brother. <laughs> it's just, to be honest, it's so much work. And uh, I don't really feel like if the Lord convicts me enough, I'll go in and do it. Uh, tonight we're talking about allegories everywhere. Scripture is full of it. I, I hope you've enjoyed the thought of it as much as I have and learned something each week. Uh, if you look hard enough in Scripture, you'll find them on every page. Um, the definition of an allegory is a representation of ideas or principles by characters, figures, or events in narrative or dramatic form. More simply put, allegories are word pictures. Simple word pictures that we can learn from. Uh, they appear throughout scriptures, aids to our understanding or remembering spiritual truths. And it's, it's a manifestation of God's goodness that he does that for us. Um, in this series of messages, we've highlighted numerous scriptural allegories. We began by looking at leprosy as a representation of the sin that lurked within each of us. Then we looked at Jacob, who was a notable sinner, uh, and he ended life as a prince of God. And Jacob is us. The study of Amalek followed, picturing sin as a determined enemy that will eventually destroy us if we don't defeat it with God's help. The helmet of salvation came next, indicating that the battleground is in our minds as we wage war against sin that is so rampant in the world, uh, in our own fleshly nature, and against the devil, the parent of sin. By the way, that's a phrase I picked up, I think John Phillips used it, I just thought what an excellent picture that is. The devil is the parent of sin. We were then encouraged to remember who we are and where we began our spiritual journey by making our pro uh, marking our progress with monuments and memorials. And the objective discussed in the following message uh, is to arrive at a place of spiritual maturity where we keep the Sabbath by finding rest in our relationship with God. We also discussed four trees that appear in Scripture. Two of them, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, were planted in Eden. The third tree, the cross, a horrible instrument of torture planted by man. And the last tree, the tree of resurrection life planted in heaven by Jesus. We talked about two brides, uh, the still sinful, though hopefully maturing and sinning less, body of Christ and the glorious heavenly body of Christ. Then we touch the contrast between marital chaos when we are married to sin and wedded bliss when we divorce sin and stick to our relationship with Jesus. Uh, we must divorce the sin before we can fully enjoy the second. 
anything less than complete separation from the world is likened allegorically in scripture to adultery. And that's kind of a sobering thought. The tenth message in our series highlighted some of the many rich soul winning allegories in scripture. Soul winning, personal evangelism, personal different aspects of it. And last week we spoke about God's glorious light and the wonder of its radiance in us and through us when we become part of God's family. In this final chapter, we're going to look at allegories everywhere throughout Scripture that teach about spiritual overcomers and uh, underachievers. <coughs> Their stories raise some important questions about us. Why do some of us succeed, some Christians, uh, very little of this applies to this group, uh, but it's a fact in Christianity, many Christians uh, fail where others succeed. Why do some Christians enjoy their faith while others seem perpetually miserable? To me, there's, there's nothing more awful than an unhappy Christian. You wonder, what are you unhappy about? You're escaping hell and you're going to be in heaven forever and you're miserable about life. Uh, it's one of life's great mysteries. Why do some Christians defeat sin and others wallow in it? In short, why are some Christians overcomers and others are underachievers? We're going to look at a lot of them this evening. We'll start with Esau, who from birth had everything in his favor. He was the eldest son, a rugged outdoor kind of man's man who was the favorite of his father, uh, Isaac. He was destined to inherit all of God's blessings from his father so that he would be the one, along with Abraham and Isaac, through whom all the world would one day be blessed. He was going to inherit everything, including all of God's blessings. But he lost it all. He threw away the power of his position because he was careless. He didn't appreciate his spiritual legacy, but chose instead to satisfy his old sin nature. Esau was a careless man who never learned self-discipline. His will got in the way of God's will. Let's not be an Esau. Samson had everything. He was given superhuman strength that made him invincible. He prevailed with ease against his enemies, whether human or animal. Natural barriers couldn't stand against him, but he lost everything. He threw away his physical power because he chose physical pleasure above spiritual submission. And we could summarize his life by saying that Samson was a carnal man who never learned spiritual wisdom. His life illustrates the danger of combining an unbroken will with God's power. The third one on the list is poor old King Saul. He had everything. He was Israel's first king. He had the God of heaven on his side to help him build the greatest kingdom the world had ever seen. And he lost it all. God tore the kingdom away from him because of his pride and disobedience. So we can sum up his life by saying that Saul was a conceited man who never admitted his own sinfulness and never learned obedience to God. His stubborn pride removed him from God's presence and God's blessing. One of the most tragic figures in the whole Bible. 
And I'd love to remark how the chapter that talks about his downfall is such an important chapter for us to study uh, because there's so much in there to teach us don't do what this king did. And the next one won't surprise you, Judas. Judas had everything. For three and a half years, he walked and talked and learned at the feet of Jesus. He walked with him, he talked with him, he lived with him, he saw the miracles, he heard the teachings. Uh, he was as close to Jesus as it's possible to be. He held a trusted position among Jesus' followers. He was the guy who looked after the money. And he threw it all away. He betrayed Jesus because he wanted power without pray, paying the price of self-sacrifice. You can sum up his life by saying Judas was a corrupt man who sought personal gain at no personal cost. His ambition ruined his inheritance. And then old Demas. Demas was very similar to Judas in that he had everything. He was a fellow laborer with the great apostle Paul during the exciting days of the early church. He heard Paul preach and teach. Uh, he probably was there and watched and listened as Paul wrote letters to the churches. Some of those letters that we read now. But Demas lost everything because he wanted popularity. His name means popular. And that provides a clue to his character because Demas sold out to the world and turned his back on God. One of the saddest statements in the Bible is found in Paul's letter to Timothy where he writes, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. What a condemnation that is. You can hear Paul's heartbreak. Demas has forsaken me. He loved the world more than he loved Jesus. More than he loved me, Paul might have added. You could say of Demas' life, he was a compromiser. He saw popularity with the world rather than condemnation from the world. His spiritual shallowness made him a sellout to the world. That's a pretty awful list. We could add a lot of other names in there. Uh, but I hope none of us see ourselves in one of these guys. And yet, such is the nature of sin. There's probably a little bit of us in all of them at some stage in our lives. Fortunately, the Bible also tells us about the ch God's champions, the ones who do uh, the right thing and become overcomers. Let's look at Daniel first. In sharp contrast, contrast to so many other achievers in Scripture, and we could add to the list, of course, Cain, uh, the ten Hebrew spies who gave a badge of false on the Promised Land, and a long line of corrupt high priests, all of them losers, all of them underachievers because they chose the wrong path. In contrast to all of that, Daniel's life is a glorious example of quiet determination to serve God under the worst circumstances. Daniel spent most of his life from the time he was a teenager as a captive in a foreign land. But he was uncompromising in his faith and his public testimony recorded in scripture 
influence kings and kingdoms. You know, anytime you feel a little oppressed by this world, just think of Daniel. His entire adult life was spent as a captive in a foreign land, far from home, far from everything that he held dearest. And he never compromised, not for one moment. Chapter 6 of Daniel is a good example of the impact he made on others. So we're going to go there and read uh, extracts from it. We'll start in chapter 6. By the way, we don't have any notes uh, because I thought you could have fun uh, afterwards. If you're interested in doing your own study, go and find out where all these people are and read their stories for yourself and think about those stories. Uh, in Daniel chapter 6, and verse 3, we read this. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. So he's in a foreign land. He's a captive there. And he is pointed out. He is brought into the close uh, circle around the king because the scripture says he had an excellent spirit. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm because that excited some uh, envy in all the other guys and they sought to destroy him and they knew they couldn't pick on Daniel because of something he did wrong so they very cleverly decided to find his weakness in his strength then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom but they could find none occasion or fault for as much as he was faithful neither was there any error or fault found in him. Can we go to verse 10? Uh, in between there, they, they actually cook up a plan. They go and tell the king, you know, you should, you're such a great king. You need to get all the people in your kingdom. Send, make a decree that everybody has to bow down and worship you. And uh, so the king says, well, that's a pretty good idea. And he sends out the letter. And these rotten guys decide, okay, we're going to watch when Daniel doesn't bow down. And sure enough, in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber towards Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did the fourth time. He didn't back down. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, because the first thing these guys did was run to the king and say, Daniel didn't obey, and the king had sent out the decree, and the punishment was to be eaten by lions, and the king was between a rock and a hard place. He loved Daniel. He was impressed by Daniel, but he couldn't turn back on the law he had written. So he commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into a den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Now listen to the response of this man, a godless king, a foreign king, so impressed by the life of one man in his kingdom that it broke his heart that he had to punish this man and listen to his testimony, the king's testimony about Daniel's God. Thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. And then verses 19 to 23. Then the king rose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. He wanted to see what had happened to Daniel in the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice. He, he was heartbroken. 
a lamentable voice unto Daniel, and the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? How did the king know that Daniel served his God continually? Is that because the way he lived? Is your God able to save you from the lions, Daniel? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel, has shut the lion's mouth, and they have not hurt thee, for as much as before in innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then the king was exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Verse 26. You have to resolve. By the way, the guys who accused him were thrown into the lion's den, and they were eaten by the lions. But then the king does this in verse 26. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. A fantastic testimony to one man's devotion to God and the impact that had on the king. The other overcomer is Paul. Of the many overcomers in Scripture, the Apostle Paul is perhaps the greatest example because he did so many things right. You know, if you had a contest, I'm not sure if you would win out Daniel or Paul, uh, but Paul had a lot to lose in his walk with God. In his unsaved condition, he had much more of the world to lose than most others. At a relatively young age, Paul had risen to the pinnacle of Jewish religious life. He was a student of the greatest teacher in Israel, a highly respected Pharisee, blameless in his devotion to the law, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, perhaps even a, an eventual candidate for high priest. Paul was on a fast track to success. But by his own testimony, the things that were gainful to him in this life lost all their value after he met Jesus. Uh, let's read from his testimony in Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin in verses 10, uh, 7 to 10 and then 13 to 14. <laughs> what things, uh, now, a man like you and me, a human being like you and me, wrote these words about his walk with God. Would that we could write the same thing about our lives. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. And then go to the last half of, chapter, uh, of verse 13. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those
devotion he's ardent for, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. This was Paul's motivation every day of his life. And as a result of his complete dedication to Christ, the Apostle Paul showed us what is possible in a Christian's life. His word was filled with spiritual power. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 4, My speech and my preaching were not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That should be the goal of every preacher. But he fulfilled that goal to the maximum. His life was triumphant. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says, Thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. He was strong in Christ. 2 Corinthians 12.10, When I am weak in the things of this world, he was referring to, Then am I strong. You recall he begged God for healing, for an illness, and God finally said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, would I rather glory in my infirmities. For when I am weak in myself, I'm strong in God. He was single-minded, Philippians 3.8. I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Peace filled his heart, Philippians 4.7. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What a most precious, precious gift of a Christian. This is something we should all experience continually. The peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding. Peace and joy, the two things every Christian should be known for. And then he was content with whatever he had. Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. And lastly, he was steadfast in his faith. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. 2 Timothy 1.12 Paul and Daniel before him triumphed when so many others failed because they weren't careless about spiritual things. They weren't carnal. That is, they didn't value the physical over the spiritual. You know, all of us are constantly tempted. We live in a world that is anti-God, anti-Christ. And everything in this present evil world is designed to drag us down. But we don't have to say yes to it. It takes some focus. It takes some humility because when we fall and we will, we need to repent real quick. Tell God, yep, I messed up, I'm sorry. And just turn to Him again. Please Him above everything else. They weren't conceited, Daniel and Paul. They put God first in everything. They weren't corrupt. They never compromised with sin, their flesh, or the devil. And most important, they never quit. Uh, it's not easy being a Christian when we do fail when we do mess up but the one mantra that every Christian should have don't quit it 
not how many times you fall that matters, but how many times you get up and keep going. So the question for us this evening is, are you an overcomer or an underachiever? Are you a winner with God or a loser? If you have Christ as your Savior, you have everything, everything you can imagine in this life and the next is yours as a Christian. Whatever you may think you lack, you have above all a God who loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And all his power is available to you to live a joyful, peaceful, faithful life. Everything you need is at your fingertips. You need only ask. See, the power is available to us constantly. Let's go to Second Peter and look at that amazing passage. Second Peter chapter 1. A pastor preached an excellent sermon on this not too long ago. Hopefully that's still fresh in your mind. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them which have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That word virtue means excellence. That's amazing verse 3. If I could uh, translate it uh, a little differently. Partakers of the divine nature Believers have an organic connection with God. And Ephesians chapter 3.19 tells us that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, it doesn't mean that we become God, but we become filled with God. We are, according to Scripture, brothers of Jesus Christ. We are being conformed to His image by our King, our God. And through this God we serve, we are given, uh, verse 4, excellent, uh, exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What an amazing heritage. But some of us are still miserable. choose to slop around in the hog pen with the rest of the world. By the way, one of the joys of being a member of this church is I don't know anybody here who enjoys that. This is a special group of people. And it's a joy, an unspeakable joy to come here three times a week and fellowship with you. It's an indescribable joy to actually break the bread of life to you. Uh, but there are Christians who, like the whole pen, they and the God's deniers they associate with don't fear God. Despite God's amazing provision and promises, they miss the mark, either because they don't know what He bears in Christ or because they're too ignorant or too lazy to apply clear principles 
outlined in the rest of this passage, you read 5 to 11 in 2 Peter chapter 1. Besides this, besides everything else he's told us, that we can be partakers of the divine nature, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. Your faith adds to its excellence, spiritual excellence, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance or self-control, and to temperance patience or perseverance, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, love in action. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You too can be like a Paul or a Daniel if you do these things. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather brethren be diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the one who makes these promises is the creator of the universe. He spoke the universe into existence. He has the power to do all this if you'll just walk with him. It's a strange quirk of human nature that habitual underachievers will often mock and reject winners. But at some point, those who mock you and scorn God may be turned to God by what they see in you. Consider Daniel trusting God in the lion's den and Paul singing hymns of praise to God at midnight after being brutally and unfairly beaten and thrown into prison. Both men changed the lives of others and altered the course of history because God was seen in them. The Philippian jailer fell at Paul's feet and asked how to be saved. The guy who was protecting him in jail, keeping him in jail, threw him into the inner prison came to him, fell at his feet and said, whatever you've got, I want. Daniel's king issued a decree that everybody in his kingdom should reverence the God of Daniel. What a testimony. Considering their inspiring testimony, the abiding question, each of us need to ask, ourselves is a very simple one. Do others who know you want to worship your God, the God they see in you? Let's pray. Father, help us. Oh God, help us. He calls so deeply in love with you. That there's no mountain too high to climb, no valley too deep to walk through. If you go with us, may you change the world around us, Lord, not by being heroes, but by people who live for you. Oh Lord Jesus, help us to share our fear with those around us. We ask in your precious name.